I'd like us to picture a great river flowing through a dense, seemingly endless jungle region. There's numerous tribes of people that live along this river, various places. One tribe is more prosperous than the other tribes, and really pretty much everyone despises them for it. All of the tribes, including this more prosperous tribe, suffer from an incurable disease. The disease is passed from one generation to the next, with few now living past 35 years of age. But the prosperous tribe, the one that seems to always initiate what is wise, has developed some health practices that enable most of their people to live a little bit longer, but they also know that there's still a great problem that must be solved. And so they devise a plan. They send one of their brightest young men to the unknown world down the river to seek a solution. And he comes back several years later. But not with medicine, as the tribe somewhat anticipated. He comes back with a large motorized boat. They've never seen such a thing. But he's learned that this river region is polluted and harbors disease, and that soon all of the people living along this stretch of this great river will die. And He's come to bring them to safety. There is a place, and you can come. But sadly, this tribe refuses to hear their son. They don't listen to his message. They're so proud of their prosperity and their superiority over the other tribes, they want their world just to exist as it does. They want to stay right here, being who they are. And they want Him to fix them the way they want Him to fix them. He pleads with them to get in His boat. A few do, but only a few. And so, with much more room in his boat, the son takes his boat up and down the river, inviting the other tribes to safety. And surprisingly, even though they know that he's from the despised tribe, many of them respond. They fill his boat, and he leaves, and he comes back again a few weeks later, and he takes on more people to safety. Same story. And as his boat passes the banks of his own tribe, he always stops and pleads for them to join him. Come, rescue yourselves. Come, join me. But they won't. They not only refuse, but it gets worse. They begin to see all of the people, all of these other tribes getting onto his boat and they begin to despise him and take offense at what is happening. We trusted this young man to help us. and It seems all he's done is endear himself to all these other tribes that despise us. We despise him. These inferior tribes are in love with this man. We're so sorry that we ever sent him for help. If we use that just as a hook, a parable, to help us understand as we come back to Romans chapter 10 today, we find here the Apostle Paul speaks as if he is a member of that prosperous tribe who actually got on the boat. And he's come back with the Son. In the analogy, he's come back with Jesus on the boat to appeal to His people and to appeal to the other tribes to join them. And He's helping the Son gather people to safety. 
So Paul's tribe in the light of this parable is Israel. He shares nothing of the anti-Semitism that is so prevalent in his day. He shares nothing of the anti-Semitism that is so prevalent in our day. That's not at all what is going on here. Rather, like this man who is serving with the Son and calling his people to safety and freedom, he is so deeply troubled. He said in Romans 9, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit to just use the parable. It's like his tribal people pointing a finger at him on the boat and saying, there you are with that guy too. He says, no, no, I'm not against you. I love you. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's my tribe. That's my people. I love them. I want them to come to safety. I'm not against them. I don't hate them. I love them. But they won't come. They won't listen They've turned against the Son. So many have turned against my message of the Gospel. In 10.1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them, my people Israel, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The answer to it all in the parable is the Son who has come and the direction of the boat as He takes us out of our sin to salvation. But they've rejected the Son. There's deep anguish in Paul's heart to this end. And yet he marvels that the tribes who never sought rescue have found it in Christ, in Israel's Messiah. He's brought this up in 9.30. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. Israel on her side pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but they didn't succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over Christ. It's tragic. It's horrific. And Paul bleeds through his heart for his people. As we track through chapter 10, the first half last week, we notice that God has accomplished everything in this process of salvation. Everything necessary. He has brought together the impossibly difficult work of salvation. We used the analogy last week of the bridge that was built We could never build this bridge on our own. But He's built it. He's put it there in Christ. He's provided everything for salvation. He's done all that hard work. What we need to do is simply trust Him and walk across the bridge. Chapter 10 and verse 8. He he is stressing here the simplicity of faith in Christ. The simplicity of just stepping off the riverbank onto the boat. It's all been provided. It's so simple. Verse 8 of chapter 10. 
The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. This message of salvation, you don't have to chase it to the ends of the earth. The boat's right there in front of you. Verse 9, if you just confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's calling on His name in faith. It's that hard what God has done from the garden and the fall to work out this salvation. He's done it all. It's that easy. For you, it is simply putting your trust and your faith in Him. Now obviously we could look at this from another angle. As Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It's a call following Him to death to the life that we've known. It's a call to death, to self, and to our own mastery. And we can look at it from that angle, certainly. But when it comes to getting in the boat, it's just trusting it. Put your trust in Jesus who has done the work and provided salvation. It's that hard. It's that easy. So now at verses 14 through 21, we start a new section of thought that flows quite naturally from Paul's declaration of the simplicity of faith in the gospel, and he bridges to the fuller consideration of Israel's stunning rejection of the gospel in chapter 11. So in this bridging section, verses 14 to 21, Paul establishes that Israel has indeed rejected the message of salvation in Jesus as her Messiah. As Paul develops this theme, we learn about the nature of the gospel enterprise that has swept us as Gentiles onto the boat of salvation. It's really a stunning development. It doesn't keep us up at night to worry about why we are included in this, but maybe it should. And as we work our way through this last half of chapter 10 and into chapter 11, we get into the roots and into the depth of our salvation and what God has done. And it really is stunning when we consider it. Very simply, and it is simple in what he is bringing for us here today, he says the enterprise of the gospel is this, it must be proclaimed. That might seem so obvious it doesn't even need to be stated. But hang on. I think there are some implications here that really are profound and necessary for us as we understand the enterprise of the gospel. This mission of taking the message of Christ to the ends of the world for the salvation of His people. The enterprise of the gospel we consider in verses 14 through 17. It must be proclaimed. Verse 14. Everyone, verse 13, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 14, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? How will they call on one? Salvation is simply through calling on the name of the Lord putting your belief and your hope in what Christ has done to save you. But how are they going to call on one in whom they've not believed? That's just simple logic. 
No one will call upon a Savior that they have not chosen to trust for salvation. Let's imagine that you're a gardener, you have potatoes, and they have worms. And you see an advertisement for a chemical that kills potato worms. Now, if you don't have a garden, if you do have a garden but don't raise potatoes, or if you do have a garden with potatoes and your potatoes are just fine, you skip right past the ad, right? It doesn't mean anything to you. You don't need that. But if you've got potatoes with worms and you read this advertisement, you're still not going to buy this chemical if you don't believe it'll work. I just think this is, they're just trying to get my money. I don't believe this at all. You've done that probably all of us numerous times with medical solutions, right? You look at it, you read it, and you go, nah, nah. They, they want money, they're not actually going to fix anything, and you move right back because you don't believe it. Once you believe you need this chemical, once you trust that it will solve your worm problem with your potatoes, you very well may contact the vendor and buy it or just put up with your wormy potatoes. But it's only, in this analogy, it's only after you believe Jesus is your soul's salvation that you will call on Him. Only then will you call on Him. And how are they to believe on one whom they've never heard? If you've never heard of a chemical that kills potato worms, you obviously can't buy it. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Someone must tell us about salvation in Jesus Christ. It can be through written word, of course. It might be something that someone put together on a piece of paper. But most often, someone must come to us and tell us this truth. They proclaim it somehow. The preaching here, don't think of what I'm doing right now, preaching in front of a church. It's a much broader term than that. The preaching here is just the proclamation of the gospel. How are they going to believe? How are they going to hear without preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone sends them? Verse 15. Heralds of the gospel must be sent out with authority and sent out with financial support. On rare occasion, there may be an evangelist. There may be someone who can proclaim the gospel on their own dime. They don't need financial support. That's the case once in a while. But most often there are costs to travel. There are costs for living. And so there need to be people who send out those who preach. But certainly always with authority. With the commendation of others. Middle of verse 15, he continues and says, as it is written, as he kind of bounces off that theme of those who preach the gospel having been sent, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul quotes here Isaiah 52 verse 7, a passage that speaks of the heralds of Israel announcing Israel's deliverance from the Babylonian captivity. These exiles will now be coming back to the land and they're spreading the news and how beautiful are the feet of those on the hills that bring back this message of the return of Israel. Paul employs that kind of wording from Scripture. It's not really a, a proof from the text, but he's employing that biblical language and speaking now of the gospel of Jesus, the greatest message of deliverance ever. 
Not Israel from exile, but sinners from eternal death. How beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim this message. He's not talking about cosmetic beauty, I can guarantee you. But the Hebrew term speaks of a timely act. They're feet that tread the earth with a timely message of redemption in Christ. This point is so basic. But let's think of the implications. We witness once again that the gospel is fundamentally a piece of news. It's news. It's not fundamentally a call to obedience. It certainly is that. But at its core, the gospel is an announcement. It is news to slaves on the slave block that they've been set free. It is a message that a remedy has been found to cure the diseased in a sanatorium. It is an announcement that rescue workers have reached people trapped in a cave. It is news that must be proclaimed and news that must be trusted. So Paul summarizes the gospel enterprise really in reverse order here, tracking backward from one's call upon Christ's name for salvation. And let's think of it, because this is our life. This, is, this identifies who we are. It roots us in the, in the enterprise of the gospel as we respond to Jesus, the risen Savior, drawing a people to His name throughout the nations. Think of it here as we look on screen. There is the sending. Messengers are authorized and sent out with support. There is preaching. Messengers meet people and proclaim to them the good news of salvation in Christ. The endeavor, the goal of sending is realized in part as that message is now sounded. And there is hearing. People hear this message and they grasp its basic meaning. There's communication taking place, and that often worldwide involves learning another language, doesn't it? But somewhere there's a communication that results in a hearing, grasping the message. And then there is believing. People believe the good news they have heard, realizing they desperately need it, which results in a calling. People call out then to Christ for salvation, for salvation, and He rescues them from sin and from judgment. This is the process, this is the enterprise of the Gospel that Paul lays out here for us. And it is, of course, let's stop for a moment and say, our privilege as a church to participate in this enterprise. We participate in it every week as an assembly. As the preaching of the Word goes out to those who know not Christ within our own assembly. We participate in it as a church as we gather on Wednesdays and often have among us those who do not know Christ and are hearing the Gospel. We participate in this as we leave this place today and go out into this world and represent Christ. We are sent out, in a sense, with that authoritative message as a church to proclaim so that people hear and believe and call on the name of the Lord. 
And what a joy for us when people do call on the name of the Lord and identify with Him in baptism as a church. This is going on in our life. This is our life as we serve the risen Christ on location. But it is certainly also our privilege to see this work going forward across the world. A sending out that takes place as we launch groups from our church, as we launch representatives from our church to go to other places. We prayed for one here today as that work goes on in Richfield and as uh, Brother Rich proclaims the Word of God coming and sending from us, but it just continues to branch out, doesn't it? as we then take the gospel through our gifts and through the authority that we pass on in some sense to those who take the gospel to places we can't even go. What a privilege is ours to do this. This is not a way of simply influencing others for our benefit. It's not a way of just getting in the game of the church and its cause. This is a way that Eden Baptist Church participates with the risen Christ. We are actively used as His tools in whatever way you can be part of that work. We are used as a church to carry on this gospel enterprise in this way. Sending, preaching, hearing, believing, calling. This is our great privilege before Christ. Now, Paul interrupts this flow of thought with a parenthetical statement that is in many ways the main point of it all. But it sort of hits us from left field, verse 16, when he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So an infusion of reality here that in the beauty of this process of taking the message of salvation in Christ, there is in fact much rejection. They've not all obeyed the gospel. And he quotes Isaiah here, who indeed has believed what he's heard from us? We might expect the word faith here. They've not all believed. But Paul may speak here, use the word obedience here to draw attention to the fact that this is willful. At any rate, their rejection confirms that the message must be heard in order to be effectual. You see that, verse 16, the report has gone out. The report has been heard. The gospel has been sounded. But he says, who's believed it? Coming back then to the theme, and we'll develop that verse 16 further below, but verse 17, so, as he kind of encapsulates this thought, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Saving faith is activated by hearing the message of the gospel. Hear that. Think on that. Here's where, as simplistic as it is, it's profound. It is when we hear, that is when we learn and understand that Jesus died in the place of sinners to suffer the just judgment that we deserved. It is when we hear, that is when we learn and understand that Jesus rose from the dead in conquest over death. It is when we hear, That is when we learn and admit that we are sinners who violate God's law and that we must trust Christ for our salvation. It is then that faith bears us into the boat of salvation. Faith 
comes by hearing. I think it is right, I think it's important to qualify here, that faith does not come by seeing. It comes by hearing. You've heard the phrase often, haven't you? Seeing is believing. On some level, for some things, that is the case. But on, in the matter of salvation, the Bible would actually steer us more to the idea that hearing is believing. Now, it has to be qualified, of course, but it's really not seeing is believing, but hearing is believing. And there's a significance to this. The Bible would take us this way. Faith does not come through seeing, and may we say it this way pointedly as one application that is significant, faith does not come through miracle. That is, it does not come when I see a miracle. And impressed with that miracle. God uses miracles to authenticate the object of our faith. Exhibit A, the miracles of Jesus. They were not unimportant. They were not ways to gather a crowd. They authenticated Him and what? His message. But a miracle that does not back up a divine message is little more than a fireworks display. It can impress it can get our attention, it cannot save. The reason, for instance, that Lazarus' resurrection was meaningful is because Jesus first proclaimed that He is the resurrection and the life. And the miracle backed up the message. Jesus didn't say to Lazarus, come out of the tomb just to show off. He didn't do it to gain a crowd. He did it certainly in compassion for Lazarus and his family, but he did not raise everyone who died around him. He did it to bolster, to demonstrate that he is indeed the resurrection and the life. And we see that, don't we, in the enemies of Jesus. This is really becomes pretty clear. The Jewish authorities got the point. Had the people thought the Jewish leaders raised Lazarus from the dead, I can imagine they, even knowing that they didn't, would probably pound their chests in pride and bask in the limelight. Wonderful, they think we did this. But when they knew that the people knew Jesus did it, did they believe? Did they fall at His feet and trust? This man called the dead from the tomb. He's clearly the author of life. Is that what they did? No, they just tried to stuff Lazarus back in the tomb. They did everything they could to take him out again. The miracle did nothing because there was no faith in the Savior and in the message. They saw the miracle, so to speak, but were filled with jealousy. Having seen Jesus create bread, did they believe that He was the author of life? Did they believe that He was the bread come down from heaven to sustain life? What did they do? Do it again. We've seen what you've done. Do it again. And they just said, do it again, do it again, and do it again to every miracle that He ever performed. We're not saved by seeing. We're saved by hearing. Paul implies that the lost must consciously respond in repentant faith to the word about Christ. 
those keeping score, I see as an objective genitive. That is that it's the word that is speaking of Christ, about him. He is the content of this word. There is a content to the message that is heard. It is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. The biblical revelation of Christ's atoning death and bodily resurrection must be heard and understood on some level for there to be response. I believe this passage is a strong support, along with a number of others, that the lost must hear the message. And we must take it to them. Across the street, across the globe, people come to faith by hearing. Nowhere in the Bible do we find support for the notion that people come to faith by being pretty much in line with the light that they have, whatever it is. This is a sobering reality, but we need to grasp the implication of it. We must take the message to people into all the earth, to hear the Word, to respond to the Word, to respond to the name of Christ. Now the context here emphasizes that Israel was the recipient of each of these links in the chain of gospel enterprise, save one. And Paul takes up this missing piece as he turns now secondly to the reception of the gospel. It must be believed. Simple, right? Straightforward. The gospel must be proclaimed. It must be received. But think of the implications. It must be proclaimed. It needs to be sounded. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word about Jesus crucified and risen. And so it, people must be sent out. The message must be taken and proclaimed. But then obviously it must be received. And think under the banner ultimately here of Israel. It applies to all, but certainly that's the focus, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But first of all, he asks a question here in verse 18. But I ask them, have they not heard? Is the problem that Israel has not heard the gospel? I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. It's probably is known to a lot of us as Psalm 19 and verse 4, which says that nature reveals the splendor of God. I don't think that he's using this passage as proof of his point directly, but using the language of Scripture by way of analogy, just as the heavens declare the glory of God, so Jesus crucified and risen has been spread everywhere. And the Israelites have heard the message. We might ask, Paul on the boat in our parable. Well, Paul, maybe, maybe they just didn't hear you. When you offered salvation yelling from the boat on the river, maybe they just didn't hear you. And Paul says, no, they've heard. This message has gone out far and wide. I think he speaks by way of hyperbole here. But this gospel message has gone everywhere throughout all the ends of the earth. They've heard. We've passed up and down the river. We've yelled out the news to them. We've even stopped on the bank of the river and held open our arms and said, please come. They've heard. That's not the issue. They've heard. Sadly, they've rejected Messiah. 9.33, they've stumbled over the stone. That's what's at issue here. Well, maybe, maybe the problem is that Israel has heard, but they just haven't understood. 
They haven't really perceived what the message is, but I ask then, verse 19, did Israel not understand? She's heard, maybe she just didn't understand. But Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. You see the reference here to Israel, which proves that the they's that have been spilling out through verse 14 and following is a reference ultimately to Israel. It's applicable to Gentiles as well who reject the gospel, but Israel is the central focus here. Israel's jealousy that the Gentiles were responding to Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah is proof that Israel understood Christ's claims. That jealousy proves they knew. They knew what Jesus was claiming. The problem is not that Israel has failed to hear or understand the gospel. Neither would excuse their sin as such, but this is not the problem. The problem was that Israel refused to believe. That's the piece of the gospel enterprise chain that was missing. The fact that the prosperous tribe was jealous of the response of the other tribes, the tribes their son had rescued, that proved that their refusal to get on the boat was a willful choice. And that's what Paul's arguing here. He supports this assertion with another biblical text, verse 20. Then Isaiah, so Moses in Deuteronomy, the now Isaiah is bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. So again, by analogy, the prosperous tribes sought an answer to their disease, but the other tribes didn't even know that they had one. In like manner, it is the Gentiles that have responded to the gospel in overwhelming numbers in comparison to Israel, who was well aware of her need of Messiah. She's been anticipating a Messiah for so very long. She knows her need. But as Moses rehearses Israel's stubborn refusal to obey God in Deuteronomy 32, Paul applies the same concept to Israel's rejection of Messiah. So verse 19, along with Deuteronomy 30, or with quoting Deuteronomy 32, along with Isaiah here, You have chased those that are no God. So God comes back to Israel and says, I'm going to reach out to a no people. What's Paul saying? Israel should really have recognized this all along in the story of her redemption. She consistently refuses God's way. And God has spoken in time past that in that refusal, He will work His salvation plan through other nations, in other nations, and Israel will be jealous. 9.30, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, a righteousness that is by faith. They didn't know they were dying. But when the boat came to the river, masses came on to the boat and went on to salvation. And all Israel can do is stand by in jealousy. Israel is to this very day mostly about in, in, the, in a more faithful religious expressions. They are mainly about what they're not. 
were not the followers of Jesus as Messiah. The answer then that comes to these two questions, just to formalize it in verse 21, but of Israel he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This is not, I hate Israel. This is, this is tragic. God holding out His hands to His chosen nation for whom He has sent Messiah to rescue and save. Paul leans over the side of the boat looking longingly at his tribe, his people of Israel, and he aches with sorrow that they refuse to come. But working with the merciful Son, Paul has no problem bringing Gentiles into the boat of salvation, as many as possible, and they're coming in large numbers of people. While Israel looks on in jealousy, we're not that. We reject our Son. We reject this One as our Messiah. All day long, God holding out His hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. What Paul is saying, in a sense, through this section, is this has always been the way it's been. Israel has continued through her history, the chosen of God, to reject Him. They are the chosen of God. These types of passages echo through Paul's spirit. But you, Israel, Isaiah 41, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you. God says through Jeremiah, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. But they would not listen. And so the natural question that comes, we find in chapter 11 and verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected His people? They have rejected God. They have stumbled over Messiah. They have not embraced the message of salvation in Him. They've rejected God. Has God then rejected them? By no means. For I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. I am exhibit A. That there is a remnant. There are those who have responded from my people. And exhibit B is God's continuing purpose for Israel, which Paul will take up in greater detail in the rest of chapter 11. But there is certainly here a call to those who have not responded in belief to this message of the gospel. And that may, I may be speaking directly to you today calling on the name of the Lord in dependent faith, trusting in Jesus' death and resurrection, is not something you've done. You've not committed to it. You've not given yourself over to it. You've not gotten on the boat. This work of salvation, please understand, is not something that you can do by works. Jump in that river and try to swim the distance to safety and you'll be eaten by alligators. It'll never, ever happen. Your job is simply to trust the good news 
of what Jesus provides for sinners. To take your self-direction, your good deeds, your works of righteousness, and to realize that none of that will save me. And to embrace the message of salvation in Jesus' name alone. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. I would encourage you, as verse 13 says, to call on the name of the Lord. This is no simplistic prayer in the sense that I just pray myself into heaven. But this is a prayer that throws your whole soul and being forever on the merits of Jesus Christ alone. Have you called on Christ's name that way? Have you come to know that He died in your place to pay the penalty of your sin? That He rose from the grave, defeating death, the penalty of sin? That He has secured eternal life for His people? Today is the day of salvation. Do not delay. Put your saving faith in Christ now. Trust Him. To make it simple with our parable, get in the boat. You don't do jumping jacks on the side of the river telling them how good you are and how healthy you are. You don't jump in the river and try to swim it against the alligators upstream for 150 miles. You get in his boat. Trust him. He will save. For those of us who have trusted that message, as the boat of salvation glides past the village of Israel, how do we feel? How does that affect us? I think we go by that village as we look from the boat of salvation and we have to be filled with a sense of horror. That's what Paul's communicating here. And I think we have to be filled with immense humility. We did not seek God. We didn't know we were dying. We're among those people God did not choose in that way did not seek Him in this way. We were way behind Israel in the approach to God. But here we are blinking, and we're on the boat. It has to humble us. The voice of the Lord has gone out to all the earth. It has reached us in our place so far from the center of Israel and from Jerusalem. It's gone to the ends of the world. And we now are those who make Israel jealous. We are that foolish nation. But now we are the saved, the redeemed of Christ. There is awesome grace in this to bring us as Gentiles into God's kingdom by faith in His Son. And the response can only be then in humility to become active participants in the gospel enterprise. To witness this message to others. To draw others in to the boat of salvation by the message. To support those from among us who go out and labor in this harvest. And to support those who go further to the furthest reaches of the world and take the good news to places where no one's ever heard. We must give financially to support. We must support with our prayers. We must support with even our authority and vetting as we lay hands upon those who will take that message and proclaim it faithfully in other parts of the world. 
we don't take this lightly as a church, and may we never take it lightly. We seek to be very careful that those who go know Christ crucified and risen and know that there is salvation in no other name. And to send them out with encouragement and support and prayers and continuing counsel to do this work for Christ. This is our glorious calling. And may it infuse in us as a church a desire to partner with and help those who take this message and to be part of that in our neighborhoods. This must be our active pursuit until Christ calls us home. May it be by His grace. Let's pray. Lord, I pray Your blessing upon these thoughts now by Your Spirit as You sanctify us and challenge us and deepen our faith and allow us to know who we are in Christ to be identified with Him in this way. I pray as well that you deepen us as some of us are able to gather in homes here in a few moments and here at the church building and to talk more carefully about these matters and to be deepened in these considerations as we build each other up in the faith. Lord, bring to that, bring to that simple call of faith in Christ those who know him not as Savior. I pray that you do a work here among us even now by your Spirit that we cannot fully perceive and could not manufacture. We pray that you bring faith in this message and a zeal to proclaim it throughout all the world. Deepen us this way, we pray, through Christ.